just a quick message from me, Rebecca Adil, and I will be quick, I promise. Just a few things I want to say. I'm really excited to share the new series, Series 2 of Killing Time. There's loads of exciting episodes in store and I just know you're going to love it. Secondly, the reviews have been brilliant. Thank you so much for that. If you haven't done it yet, a five-star review would be much appreciated. And finally, 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 if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon account, which I bang on about all the time. <laughs> Don't feel pressured, but it would be wonderful. Um, you can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. <sighs> and breathe. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into episode 14, The Curse of King Tut. It is November 1922 and we're in the Valley of the Kings, Egypt, where a team of workers is removing masses of rubble beneath the tomb of Ramesses VI. For 3,000 years, the ancient debris has guarded the entrance to a previously unknown tomb. The team, led by British archaeologist Howard Carter, is about to make one of the most important archaeological discoveries of the 20th century, the tomb of Tutankhamun. The discovery of the ancient Egyptian boy king made headlines around the world, but it wasn't long before the archaeological story gave way to another tale. You see, something seemed to be happening to those involved in the excavation. They were dropping dead. As we will see, the legend of King Tut's curse encompasses the complicated way ancient Egypt has been viewed by imperial western treasure seekers, from those gobbling up news stories and fictional accounts to the early 20th century men and women excavating the sites. To get to the bottom of this story, I'm joined by Dr Amara Thornton, a specialist in the history of archaeology during the late 19th and early 20th century. Amara, thank you for coming on to the podcast today. So um, mm. I'm, I'm quite excited. We're going to talk about the infamous mummy's curse um, when the, the tomb of King Tut was opened. But first of all, I, I wonder if you could you could tell me a little bit about this, you know, that famous excavation. What was the state of Egyptology and um, the archaeology related to it at that point in time? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that 1920s Egyptology, especially early 1920s Egyptology, is at the tail end of a period of British occupation in Egypt. So Britain occupied Egypt in 1882. And essentially what that meant was that there were British officials in Egyptian government departments that the Khedive was still in place and there were, you know, there was a sort of Egyptian government in place, but there were there were British officials who had a lot of power in Egypt. And it also meant that there was a su substantial expat community who lived in Egypt and they are part of a sort of network of people that archaeologists would have been in touch with on a regular basis. Some of the high government officials who were British in the Egyptian government were also patrons of 
the Egypt Exploration Society, for example. So the context of Egyptian archaeology at this time is really one of, you know, it's an imperial context. Um, and that's a really, really important point to make about this. The year 1922, which is uh, when Carter was doing the season of excavation during which the tomb was discovered, was also quite significant in that that year, the British protectorate, which had been established in Egypt, was declared to be over. So this was a new period of independence, or so, you know, semi-independence from Britain, even though Britain retained quite a lot of influence and, and power after 1922. But this is, this is a moment of, of independence for Egypt. So that's part of the political context as well of the excavation. Okay, and then within within this, I mean, was Howard Howard Carter's team and backers was it a unique project, or were they one of many that were um, looking at the sites at the time? Yeah, well, Howard Carter is one of many Western archaeologists who are working in Egypt. So, one important thing to consider when looking at the Carter excavations is that he had been working in Egypt from a very young age. So he went out originally as a sort of 19-year-old artist working for various excavators as an artist and also having strong ties with the Egypt Exploration Fund, which is still going today as the Egypt Exploration Society. But it was originally constituted in 1882, the same year that Britain occupies Egypt. And it was constituted in order to foster research and excavations in Egypt. And so Howard Carter is part of this network of British archaeologists who are being funded by public subscription in the case of the Egypt Exploration Fund. And other archaeologists are also being funded by public subscription. But there is also, alongside that, a number of patrons of archaeology, so big industrialists and other wealthy individuals who are also funding archaeological work, and they are also getting concessions. So Carter kind of bridges the two kinds of funding mechanisms for archaeology. So he has private patrons, so Carnarvon is one of those private patrons, and he's also working for the Egypt Exploration Society, or fund as it then was, which is a sort of public subscription organization. And that is very significant too, in that public subscription needs to have public visibility in order to work. So built into that system of subscribers is the fact that every year when British archaeologists go to Egypt, they need to tell people what they're finding. And they do that through papers, newspapers and magazines giving public lectures. So the whole funding system of public subscription is built on archaeological visibility in the press. And that's really important for Carter's later work in the Tut case. That's really interesting. So already they've got this, they've got this relationship with the press and with the public, whereby there's, it's, a, you know, it's flowing both ways. And that's, that's really interesting. Just going back to Lord yeah. Carnarvon then, I, I think I can guess why, but just, um, just in case I'm wrong, what, what, would, what would have been the motivation to fund these projects in Egypt? Would it be entirely ego and um, prestige or was there something else going on? I think it's a bit of lots of things, really. I mean, partly it's, you know, he had an interest, like a lot of people with money did in Egyptology. You know, there was a sense of we are 
donating in order to get something out of it. So, so there is a, a sort of sense of exchange, if you like, uh, and a financial agreement. And it's also, you know, this is a place that has quite a significance to sort of Britain's sense of itself as a as an imperial country. So, so I think you have to look at it in that light as well. And there's also quite a significant tourism element. So um, one of the things to remember about archaeology in this period is that it coincides with a tourist season. So the archaeological season, which is the time that, you know, Western archaeologists spend in Egypt, starts in November and ends in the spring. So like March or April. This is the time when both archaeologists and tourists are coming to Egypt. So they're all mixing in the same circle. They all come, they go to Cairo for a few days, and then maybe they take a little trip up the Nile. Um, and there's, you know, very, very wealthy people who are doing this every year. And so there's a sense of repetitiveness and a cyclical nature to this, um, which ensures that, that Egypt is kind of part of a cycle that you do if you're from a certain class. I see. So I'm getting I'm getting grand tour vibes here or perhaps like yes, modern, the modern um, version of the gap year. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, a little bit. And it, it's it's something that is fostered also by companies like Thomas Cook. I mean, that's a Thomas Cook had a major operation in Egypt for a very long time. And they're also making it possible through package tours for for people who aren't, you know, loaded with money to, to come to Egypt mm. as well. And the other um, part of that also is that there are ongoing military campaigns in Egypt that British soldiers are involved in to do with imperial expansion. So, so there's also a community of, of soldiers who are part of this as well. Goodness. And then let's let's speed forward then now to the actual discovery. Now, Howard Carter, as we know, was obviously there. Lord Carnarvon was present as well, was he Was he not? This podcast is obviously not about that discovery specifically, but I think it'd be remiss not to not to mention it. Um, could you describe briefly what, you know, what happened and what they found in the tomb? So the discovery is is made by the work workers who are working on the excavation. So one of the things that's really important to remember about archaeology is that the people who are credited with the discovery, Howard Carter and um, Western archaeologists, are not the ones who are actually doing the digging. It's the many, many, like hundreds of Egyptians who are um, employed to excavate who are actually doing the work. And in this case, a staircase was uncovered during the dig in November of 1922. And that is, that is the first indication that there was a tomb to be found. And as the, the work continues, and remember, this is right at the beginning of the season also. So there's potential for the, the season as it goes on for more and more tourists to kind of get word about this new excavation. So so the season actually is really important. And um, I don't think Carnarvon is there right at the beginning. I think he comes a bit later. So they uncover the sort of beginning entrance of the tomb, and then they find a sealed compartment. Um, and it's, it's at that moment, I think, that Carnarvon comes so that they can open the tomb in the presence of the funder. Howard Carter kept a journal where he recorded the discovery. 
On the 26th of November, he described how they made a breach in the top left-hand corner of the doorway and waited. I widened the breach and by means of the candle looked in while Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn and Callender with the Reeses waited in anxious expectation. It was some time before one could see. The hot air escaping caused the candle to flicker, but as soon as one's eyes became accustomed to the glimmer of light, the interior of the chamber gradually loomed before one, with its strange and wonderful medley of extraordinary and beautiful objects heaped upon one another. There was naturally short suspense for those present who could not see. When Lord Carnarvon said to me, Can you see anything? I replied to him, Yes, it is wonderful. They lit an electric torch to better see. Carter noted, Our sensations and astonishment are difficult to describe, as the better light revealed to us the marvellous collection of treasure. The antechamber contained almost 700 objects, from gold thrones and gilded beds to alabaster chests and jewellery. Carter found it hard to process what he saw before him. Our sensations were bewildering and full of strange emotion. We questioned one another as to the meaning of it all. Was it a tomb or merely a cache? It would take three months to remove the items to get to the burial chamber itself. Once inside, they found shrines within shrines and coffins within coffins and at the heart of it all was the golden sarcophagus of King Tutankhamun himself. The find was utterly remarkable, but it very quickly became attached to the legend of a deathly curse. Well, so I, I suppose the first one to go, as it were, is Carnarvon, who is bitten by a mosquito and then that gets infected and he dies in April of 1923. And this is then interpreted as, as a sort of evidence of a curse, which, you know, to set it into context, there is already a little bit of, well, not a little bit, a lot of sort of literary imaginings of curses that relate to Egyptian mummies that are, you know, part of the sort of literary canon, if you like. And so that is just picked up on because of the sort of buzz around this discovery of an unopened tomb. Interestingly, before Carnarvon's death, both The Times and the New York World magazine published novelist Marie Corelli's words about the discovery. She wrote... The most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. A couple of years later on, there are other deaths. So Arthur Mace, who was another British uh, Egyptologist who was working on the dig, he dies of ill health. And this is interpreted as, you know, evidence that anyone who comes into contact with the tomb is, is cursed. I think he was really just totally exhausted by the whole thing and and in delicate health anyway. Then there's the doctor who x-rayed the mummy of Tutankhamun. He dies, I think, in 1924. And this is, again, interpreted as evidence that anyone who comes into contact with discoveries made during Tutankhamun's tomb is our, our curse. And then there's the secretary of Carter. So there's, you know, eventually there's a, a sort of massive list of people who who are associated with a curse, and this is replicated in the newspapers. So every time someone who is said to have been present at this event dies, the newspapers would say, oh, is this the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb? And so you get this sort of ever-increasing list of people. 
Other deaths linked to the curse were Prince Ali Kamel Farmi Bey of Egypt, who was shot by his wife in 1923, Sir Lee Stack, who was assassinated in Cairo in 1924, and even Howard Carter's pet bird, who was thought to have been killed by a cobra. And then everyone who writes much later about the history of archaeology is talking in some way. If they cover Howard Carter's tomb, they're also talking about this curse. So, for example, um, one of the sort of most popular histories of archaeology is a book that was written by a German writer called um, C.W. Serum, called God's Graves and Scholars. And it was a massive bestseller when it was published, I think in the 40s. And that has a chapter not only on the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, but also on the curse of Tutankhamun. And there are a number of other popular histories that cover Carter's discoveries. And so this story is always getting kind of made visible as people start remembering and sort of talking about it in popular histories. I'm just interested. So obviously we know we know now the accepted facts of these deaths are and even in the face of the fact that they were they were natural deaths they were you know caused by things unrelated to the tomb people were still willing and and wanting to believe this idea of a curse why do you think it has such a hold over people this idea of ancient egypt and curses and 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 mummies and the risks of going and excavating what is it about that kind of mythology that that grips us i think it it's something that's been, at least in sort of Western literary traditions or Anglo-American literary traditions, it's been around for quite a long time, this idea of mummies and curses. And, you know, in the sort of sort of early 19th century, there were a lot of mummy unwrappings and mummy unwrapping parties in which people would take away linens from mummies as they were being unwrapped in these sort of social gatherings. And then there are writers who talk about sort of mummies in the context of gothic horror. So, for example, one of my favorite authors, Louisa May Alcott, wrote a short story in at the end of the 1860s called Lost in a Pyramid, which is about the discovery by some tourists of uh, a box of, of seeds in a tomb in Egypt. And those seeds are then planted and a very beautiful flower emerges. But this flower is cursed and it kind of sucks the life out of people who who have the flower. And that kind of also plays into another interest that was very popular in the 19th century, which is on the growing of wheat from mummies that were found in association with mummies and tombs in Egypt. And that was a very, very popular thing among the sort of scientific community. Well, growing, growing wheat from the mummies? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. That's, uh... <laughs> if seeds, seeds, like seed grains that were found in archaeological contexts, there were experiments right. to try and regrow ancient grains. And in fact, that's something that still interests people. So I don't know if you remember, I think it was late last year, there was there was some Twitter buzz about people trying to recreate ancient Egyptian bread. I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So in a sense, that's still kind of, I mean, people are always interested in trying to get closer to ancient, you know, ancient peoples through food. And this is just, you know, this one example. But that that kind of comes together in literature. So, you know, Louisa Malika, as I mentioned, but there, there's a whole 
number of other people. So Arthur Conan Doyle writes a story called Lot Number 249, which is about a student in Oxford who, who brings a mummy back to life and then sends it off after people that he considers his, his enemies. Uh, it's a great story. And there's another um, interesting story about an object in the British Museum, which is called the Unlucky Mummy. And that is a, a coffin lid and, you know, anyone who comes into contact with that is supposed to be, you know, have harm come to them. Um, and this was a story that was circulating in the sort of late 19th century. And there's a really good book that I would thoroughly recommend, which is all about um, the history of mummy curse stories. Um, and that's by Roger Luckhurst. It's called The Mummy's Curse. And that, that goes into a lot of detail about the sort of literary context and also the historical context of, of mummy curse narratives. And it starts with Tutankhamun's tomb. So this is something that has been going for quite a long time, and the media is part of the reason why these stories are still with us. And archaeologists were not opposed to exploiting that. So one of the most interesting things that I found when I was doing work on how archaeologists are writing about their own work for the public is that there are books that are produced in the early 1920s by archaeologists that are directly responding to the increased public interest in Egyptology that was generated by the discoveries that were being made under Carter's uh, excavations. And one of them is a woman who is an, an artist. She was working in Egypt with her husband, and she wrote a book about Egyptian history and art. And one of the things she says is, in her foreword is that the discovery that was made in Tutankhamun's tomb was made at a time when she had just gotten the proofs for her book, so she wasn't able to include a response to it in her text. So she was putting it in her foreword just to kind of acknowledge that this momentous event had happened. And she was hoping to kind of get more readers for her book because of that, but she wasn't able to go into any details about it because of the timing of the the proofs being delivered to her. So I thought that was quite interesting. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there when you're writing something and something new comes up. Yeah, desperate to capitalise. <laughs> and then obviously just talking about the, the legacy of, of, of the curse and other mummy curses as well, I think we do see it in film, don't we, even today? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Tutankhamun has been, I think, very important for public interest in archaeology certainly predates Tutankhamun, but there is a, a, an interest there that people wanted to capitalize on, and archaeologists still do that um, to a certain extent, I think. And it also shapes the way that we think about Egyptian archaeology also. Mm. So, And that's something that we need to start deconstructing, and there are projects now to deconstruct that image of archaeology that's been created in part by the way that Carter and his discoveries have been represented and the way that he rep represented his discoveries himself. So there's a lot of work being done now, particularly by a scholar called Christina Riggs, who is looking at the photographs that were produced during the excavations and how they were staged and what that says about what the visual history of Egyptian archaeology is from that time period. So it's, I think, really important that we look at these narratives critically and understand the wider context of the way in which they're being constructed and produced. I think that's such a good point to make because I think in, in well, certainly growing up, if, if you were to say, 
you know, an Egyptologist to me or archaeology in ancient Egypt, I, automatically my brain would conjure up this image of a, a white British, maybe American man, probably Brendan Fraser, going into um, a country and leading leading the excavations himself, when in actual fact, as you're intimating, that is not the story at all, is it really? It was more of a, a collaborative effort and we've centred the perhaps not necessarily the wrong people, but we've centred certain types of people for perhaps too long. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of effort, particularly at the moment, going into trying to uncover the stories of people from Egypt who are working on these excavations and trying to give them more academic credit for the work that they were doing. So not just physical labor, but, you know, people who were highly trained working on excavations for years and years and years, developing a lot of knowledge about sites and about archaeological processes. And and so the way in which we talk about those contributions really needs to be rethought. And and I think that's, that is definitely happening. And it's it's being done in Egypt as well, which is really important. So Egyptian scholars are talking about Egyptian archaeologists and archaeologists who are operating at the same time as the archaeologists that we know more about because they're the ones who are featured in the press um, and they're the ones who are featured in the sort of popular history. So the history of archaeology has a lot to answer for in the way that we view archaeology. And that's partly because archaeologists also were creating their own narratives and they they were willing to play around with with public expectations so one of the best examples i can give is a woman called margaret murray who was a professor at ucl a professor of egyptology and she was working at the same time as howard carter and but she wrote a memoir or an autobiography called my first 100 years and she has a chapter on the occult in her autobiography Partly that's to do with the fact that she was very interested in witchcraft and she became a scholar in the history of witchcraft. But one of the things that, that she says in the opening of this chapter, which is the book was published in 1963 when she was 100, she says, every archaeologist is expected to have at least one occult experience. And then she goes on to describe a situation, Abydos, which is a site that she had worked on, and Arthur Mace is also involved in this story. So, so she says that Arthur Mace was working at Abydos and they were finding quite a lot of human remains at Abydos and so many human remains, in fact, that they had no place to store them. So Arthur Mace was storing some in his room on the site. And one day he had, he had stored, I think it was an arm or something, on a shelf above his bed and he woke up in the middle of the night with this sort of mummy hand at his throat and so she's kind of tongue-in-cheek placing saying that this was a scenario in which it could be said that disturbing the the bodies of the dead will will leave you with a mummy hand at your throat you know like ready to strangle you or whatever but but then she goes on to say something like obviously this is because you know having dug up the the mummy, the, the muscles had relaxed and so the the arm just kind of fell off and it just so happened to land there. And so but she is she is couching all of this within a, a framework of archaeologists being exposed to potential dangers and sort of cursed bodies, if you like, that are that are after them for 
for desecrating burials. And she, she tries to explain it away, but she's, she's milking it for all it's worth, I think is the main point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think that's a brilliant note to end it on because I think it's like it gives a nice little microcosm of the wider picture and everything that um, we've discussed, I think, during, during this episode. But Amara, thank you so much for um, telling this story today because it's, um, it is so interesting and I will absolutely be the first one paying to go and see the next film about mummies even though I know it's it's misrepresenting things it's just there's something about them I don't know why (laughs) yeah they are they are compelling narratives yeah (laughs) thanks very much you're welcome I think humans are both fascinated and appalled when the dead are disturbed like magpies we can't help but gaze in wonder at the treasures their tombs contain perhaps curse legends are manifestations of this guilt a way of distancing ourselves from responsibility, but at the same time, reflecting it back at ourselves. This